Well, it's been a month since I've been able to uh, speak, so it's, it's really great to be back. And uh, I'll confess, it's also very daunting. It's strange to get going again. Uh, but I've been delighted to be able to keep up um, with the series that we've been working through, looking at Luke's Gospel, the, the book that Luke wrote to this person called Theophilus, describing the life of Jesus. Um, if the Bible's new to you, the New Testament might be new to you. The, the New Testament begins with four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are each different perspectives, different views, different angles on the life of Jesus. Uh, Luke's gospel, which is the third of those books, is a little bit unusual. It's a little bit different in the sense that it is really, it's volume one of two volumes. Uh, volume two is the book of Acts, which is the fourth book, fifth book uh, in the New Testament. Luke is the third biggest contributor to the Bible. He is a significant writer uh, for the Bible, and we've been working through this. We're up to chapter 12. Most of the chapters in Luke are really, really long. So what we're having to do as we work through it is to just grab from it various ideas, various thoughts, to continue on this journey uh, of what Luke is in inclined for us to think about is, what do I do with this historical event of the life of Jesus? He's encouraging Theophilus to be confident in what he's heard about this Jesus, to be confident in what has been taught to him, to be confident in what he believes. And therefore, if you're confident in something, then you live your life according to what you're confident in, don't you? That, that's the pattern that he's encouraging. Uh, last week really made me smile. Um, it was the Sunday after that dramatic Thursday night, Friday morning, Brexit, uh, and the most surprising outcome, I guess, for many of us was the idea that uh, we're actually... Uh, destined to leave the EU. Uh, I'm not going to make any political comment, one view or the other. What I do find absolutely... Uh, well, I actually had to suppress... A, well, no, the smile came out. I had to suppress a laugh. Because in the reading on Sunday last week, and I thought Ash did really well uh, not to pick up on this, uh, Jesus knew their thoughts and he said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. I thought, wow, that, that's pretty apt, isn't it? Uh, what a time to read a, a verse like that. At the same time, uh, and moving into this week, I think it really hits home, uh, this whole past two weeks, have really hit home at an essential element of our human experience. And it's this, how do I create security for my daily life? How do I view my life and how do I create security in the life that I live? That is as apt a question in the 21st century as it was in the 1st century. Whether you're the people who are listening to Jesus teach or whether you're Theophilus who is hearing about Jesus or whether in the 1st, 2nd and 3rd centuries you are one of those small groups of believers in Jesus who are being persecuted by the Roman authorities and then finally seeing, surprising to absolutely everybody, 
actually the message of the Bible becoming the established religion of the whole of the empire, what an incredible turnaround that was, all of those different perspectives, there is this constant endeavor in our human experience, how do I create security in my life? It's been debated and discussed by philosophers, by psychologists, by politicians, by the academic elite, uh, and by the popular culture. How do I create that level of security? Luke is encouraging Theophilus to ask that question, I think, in this chapter. And in a sense, therefore, he's asking us uh, today to think about that very question. How do I create security in my life? He does it with three, uh, three stepping stones, two perspectives of security in this world, and then what I've described as a final weather warning, which we'll come to uh, at the end. The first picture we find in verse 13, uh, we'll describe it as financial security. <laughs> as soon as you say that, financial security, you could be writing uh, about today, couldn't you? Absolutely could be writing about today. You could be writing about the past couple of weeks or the past 10 years as our economy has gone through massive transformations. You could have been writing it about 50 years ago or 100 years ago when we were going through, as we remember at this very point in our history, 100 years ago, we were looking at the most desperate of human situations with the Great War exploding around us. That's a question about security, isn't it? And yet, this little story that Jesus engages in, and this cameo that Luke um, brings to our attention... It's really just very, very basic. It's real, really down to earth. It's about the day and day-to-day events of our life. In verse, 30, verse 15, we read this. Sorry, in verse 13, we read this. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. That's what's said. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. You can almost hear the angry younger brother, frustrated, desperate to live his own life, and unable to live his own life. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Um, For those of you who are uh, really uh, enthusiastic about really digging into the text, That is phenomenally loaded, what Jesus says there. Astoundingly loaded. Who has made me a judge over you? Take that back, right right the way back to the early chapters of the Bible, and what we see is that God's appointed in Moses becomes the judge through through various forms over the people. It is God's appointed who becomes a judge. And the These people are now, as God's people, turning to Jesus and asking him to make a judgment. It's fascinating. We're not going to cover that. You might want to dig into that a little bit. It picks up on this first century model 
of uh, primogeniture, which means essentially that the firstborn holds all the inheritance. That seems in our culture really strange, doesn't it? Really quite unacceptable. Before we jump on our bandwagon and rail against the Bible, let's just pause. Primogeniture in a day where people lived relatively short lives, comparatively speaking, was a way of creating security for the next generation. It would be quite likely that I would pass on my inheritance to my firstborn at a point where there would be other children who were not mature enough to look after themselves. So primogeniture actually creates a burden of responsibility of care on the firstborn. Yet we already know that there are various stories in the Bible that indicate that there were moments where that was not the absolute. You remember the story of the two sons, or the prodigal son as it's often called. The youngest son comes and asks. In other words, where there is that moment where the 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 children are reaching a level of maturity, it was not unusual. It was not an absolute law, in other words. And this man comes and tells Jesus, asks Jesus to judge and get his brother to give him the money. Fascinatingly, Jesus responds in, in the way that he does in so many ways. It seems just as though he's being asked Just an honest, straightforward decision. And yet Jesus delves into deeper issues and gets right to the heart of what's uh, going on here. Watch out, verse 15. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. (laughs) Wow. You know, really... To be perfectly honest, that could be said against much of Western culture, actually. We live absorbed, just imbibing day to day, a world which believes that our status, our security, our standing, even our relationships, everything depends on what we have managed to secure. Life does not consist of that, Jesus says. Life, in other words, is not about that. He's actually raising our eyes and saying, life is bigger than just that. It's way more significant. The question is, in what way is it more significant? Well, he tells a story. He tells a story of a rich man. Uh, and the, um, the currency that he talks about in this particular story is grain. It's kind of the currency of the day. I was watching a great program. Most of, well, many of us would probably fall asleep at even the, even the mention of it. I was watching a really brilliant program. Bethany Hughes looking at the three incredible characters of past recent history. One was Karl Marx. The whole questioning of the capital structure and the, the, the kind of structures of capitalism is just fantastic. Yeah, I'm losing you here already, aren't I? <laughs> and yet the currency that's being talked about at this point is grain. It's just the most basic. 
But at the same time, here's a guy who has been incredibly successful in producing, and in producing something, he has found security in his mind. He gets to the end of this incredible harvest, and he says, oh, what am I going to do? I've I've filled up my barns. What do I do? I know I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to store even more. And then I can reach that. I can live the dream. I can just sit back and relax. And life is great. I guess our culture today for all of us, has different points. How many barns do we need? You know, the great adage would be, how many barns do we need? Just an extra barn would be the idea. Uh, Everybody is going for that moment where we get just enough. But then some others of us might say, actually, do you know what? I've got it. I've got it all. I can now just relax. Some of you are kind of at the beginning of careers, at the beginning of your jobs, are thinking, I wonder whether I'll ever get there. Those of you who are maybe getting towards the end of our jobs and our careers might be wondering, did I ever get there? And where is there anyway? Jesus is just hitting on a really salient point for the life that we live today, isn't he? He's actually saying, do you know, Theophilus, there are in metaphorical terms, builders of barns in your life. You might be, Theophilus, a builder of barns. He's saying to us today, metaphorically speaking, there are builders of barns in our life today. We might be builders of barns in the sense that we are the ones or we are clinging on to that idea that I can create for myself a structure of life, a security, which means that when I get to there, that's it. I've made it. See how this is all about security. And then God said to him in verse 20, bringing in that eternal perspective from the temporary dream God says, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? Wow. We kind of know that, don't we? We kind of know that. We intuitively know that there is a futility in creating an absolute security in what we can create for ourselves. And yet, we are so often blinkered to just carry on creating that security, which we know is actually not going to give us any security anyway. In other words, what we are saying is that we see life only working out for the sake of these few years that we live. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that life can be looked at momentarily, temporarily, according to the life that we live in this world, or, and that's what the story tells us, or we can introduce 
the eternal dimension of God. There's other parts in the Bible, just to clarify this. There are other parts in the Bible, particularly the Proverbs, which describe very clearly that it is a foolish person who does not work and who does not plan and who does not prepare. Jesus is not railing against the idea of working and planning and preparing. Jesus is standing against the idea that that can give us absolutely unquestionable security. It can't. It cannot give us that, he says. Because it cannot give us eternal security. The clarity is in verse 21. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for for themselves, but is not rich toward God. I love that phrase. I think it's just beyond genius. The The kind of play on the idea of riches. This guy looks the absolute epitome of richness. He's got more grain stored up than he can ever worry about for the rest of his life. And yet, in eternal sense, he is poverty-stricken. That's the issue. In eternal sense, he is penniless because he has not got his first priority of richness secured. And it's richness towards God. What an What a bizarre concept that God can be our richness. Just think about that for a minute. God can be our richness. Our riches are found in Him. We're going to develop it. So that's financial security. Then He goes on and He talks further. Jesus saying to His disciples... In verse 22, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear, for life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. If the first is about financial security, dealing with what I have, this next section is about dealing with what I don't have. What when I don't have those things? And it's about worry. Now, I just want to pause for a minute because I think this particular section can be used very, very unhelpfully. We know more about the way our minds work than we have possibly ever known in many ways. Uh, and there is, there is the, uh, the situation or the, the experience where we, we do have a deeper and Uh, unusual, abnormal level of anxiety. I don't believe that this particular section is dealing with those issues of clinical anxiety. That's a separate thing. If, If that's something that you're concerned about, you want to talk about, more than happy to talk about that separately. What Jesus is dealing with here is just that ongoing issue of of how I just day-to-day 
fix myself on what I'm concerned about. That, that's what he's really driving at. In a sense, the first guy was worrying, <laughs> and he actually made it. These people, alternatively, are worrying because they haven't made it. It's about that, what fills my mind on a day-to-day -day basis? What am I concerned about? He touches on a very key issue of our condition today. I've been fascinated at the response of some people as a result of the, um, the Brexit decision. It has stirred up incredible levels of concern about day-to-day -day life. What's going to happen? What's tomorrow going to bring? What are the issues for me over these next period of time? What's the stock market going to do? And what's it going to do to my job? And what's going to happen about me being able to do X, Y, Z and the plans that we had and the things that we were expecting to be able to do? All of those constant things. And then on a day-to-day -day level, Jesus brings in those just down-to-earth issues of what am I going to wear? What am I going to eat? <laughs> in contrast to every health program and every diet program and every idea of healthy living and lean living and all the rest of it and great exercise, Jesus says this, who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? That is just brilliant, isn't it? But it's exactly the same, I think, as the idea of not preparing. That does not, I don't think, mean that we don't live wisely. Of course not. Of course we still live wisely, we still do things, but the issue is this. Can I change the outcome of my life by worrying? No. Do I do the good things? Of course I do. I was reading a few weeks ago about a lady called uh, Beryl Burton. Uh, she's relatively unknown, but Beryl Burton was one of the most successful British cyclists in history. Uh, she held all sorts of records which were only broken fairly recently. She was a phenomenon at a, at a time when f women's cycling was formally, formally not recognized. She was just fantastic. Hour record, 25-mile record, all sorts of things. Do you know Beryl Burton died at the age of 59, out on her bike, delivering invitations to her 60th birthday? Oh, wow. I mean, that's a tragedy, really. For somebody who, she died of a heart attack. I mean, in lots of ways, the last person in the world that you would have thought of to die of a heart attack. Really sad. But then you just, it just makes you think, you know, in whose hands is my life? I think that's rather salutary. Whose hands is my life in? That's what Luke wants Theophilus to think about. He wants to encourage us that if we have a Father in heaven rather than an ogre God, 
if we trust and have faith in a Father in heaven, then the goodness of His eternal kingdom is precisely what He wants to give. You ever thought about that in the nature of God? God is not a God who wants to hold back and grudgingly give because we've persuaded Him to give us it. Because we've behaved well enough, we've done good enough. He is a just an incredibly grace-filled, giving God whose satisfaction is found in the outpouring of all He is and pouring out liberally and in prodigal ways everything that He is upon us. That's what He desires to do. And therefore Jesus says, when you understand that through ultimately, as we see the story unfold, as we see our relationship with the Father through the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit, God is saying, I want to liberally pour out on you the most amazing eternal provision. That is the life that I'm talking about. How do we consider our wellness an interesting question, isn't it? Do we consider our wellness by how successfully we've managed to reduce our resting heart rate? Do we manage our wellness and understand our wellness by how many pounds we've managed to shift? All of that is part of life, but it is not eternal. Eternal joy, eternal hope is found in Jesus. That's what he's saying. The final little cameo is at the end of the chapter, which could have been written to to Britain today. Do you know what? It's been commented on so many occasions. One of the best sources of conversation in the UK is the weather. We can talk about the weather till we're blue in the face. And then he turns to the crowd in verse 54 and he talks about the weather. I don't know whether first century Jews were as good at talking about the weather as we are today. It suggests that maybe they are. He says, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say it's going to rain. You can almost imagine, you can picture them sat outside a cafe in first century Jerusalem looking out seeing a cloud rise in the west and saying, it's going to rain, it's going to rain, and then, lo and behold, it rains. Same cafe, three days later, there's a south wind. Jerusalem's a fascinating place. It's right at the point where three continents meet. Anything from the south is going to be hot. Any wind from the south is going to be a hot wind. So if you get a wind from the south, Jerusalem is going to bake. See, it's a south wind. It's going to be hot. And then Jesus turns on them and he says, you are a bunch of hypocrites. that's That's a really strong word, isn't it? You are hypocritical. Why? Why are they hypocritical? I think it's because of this. I think it's because they're able to say really wise things 
about things that they observe, but they fail to say really wise things about the unfolding of the story of God in the world. That's what Jesus is driving at. You know how the world works, he's saying, when you look at the weather, but you have every reason to be able to interpret the days that you currently live in in relationship to me. And you haven't got it. That's why they're hypocritical. They're claiming to be wise. And actually, they're fools. Because they've got, not got the most important of messages. They should be living in a day where they're able to look back and say, oh, we knew that there was going to come an amazing prophet. We knew that the story of God unfolding in the world would result in somebody like you. And they've said, get out of our face. That's the hypocrisy. Jesus is saying, you, you know, you, you can interpret things. You are able to look at signs and you are able to make good decisions about what is going on. And you haven't made good decisions about me. I guess in one sense, I would go so far as to say this. The accusation of hypocrisy for those people is even less than the potential accusation of hypocrisy towards us. And I would say that for this reason. It at least they didn't know the full story about Jesus. At least they weren't able to say, and we nailed him to a cross, and put him in a grave, and then he rose again, and he lived. At least they weren't able to say that. We are faced with that. We are faced with that historical claim, and we are faced with the unfolding of the story of the gospel across the whole of the world. And in a sense, Luke is saying to us with these words, and within that, Theophilus, you have to decide. You have to come to terms. Which signs are you going to read? <laughs> the signs that we would say are essential to reading are precisely those signs that are found in the unfolding story of Jesus in the world. The culmination of God's purpose and plan of salvation. And then the unfolding of the good news of the gospel across the whole of the world. And we are placed within that story today. We are. Because we're not hearing by first hand a letter arriving from Luke, but we are hearing the unfolding of the story today. And so we are faced with exactly the same question. <laughs> Hypocrite, unable to read the signs, or absolutely filled with eternal hope in Jesus. Jesus.